Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to Relatable. Uh, if you are watching this on YouTube, which by the way, if you're not watching this on YouTube, you should definitely subscribe to my YouTube channel. But this looks a little bit different. I look even more like a trash person than I usually do because I recorded this episode and then I realized, okay, no, I want to re-record this episode because there are some more things that I want to say. So I had to do it last minute. So I don't even have all my equipment set up. I don't have any makeup on. I'm literally sitting on my couch and talking to you guys because there's just a lot that I want to say. And I didn't feel like I said it correctly in the first recording. That's how much I love you guys. Like, I hope, I hope that you guys know that I really want to, to deliver to you guys the best possible content that I possibly can with all of the information that I possibly can, because we are tackling a pretty complex subject. We're going to talk about Black Liberation Theology, which we talked about a little bit last week, but we're going to talk about some connections that it has uh, to two other ideologies, uh, to the Nation of Islam, as well as uh, to Marxism and the ties that all of them have, and then what that actually points to and what that means for us as evangelical Christians who have been kind of watching the social justice left infiltrate the church and how really godless views uh, have made their way into to evangelicalism using the Trojan horse of social justice. So that's what we're going to talk about today. It's a little bit complex, but I think that it will be extremely informational. And as always, I will look forward to you guys' thoughts. You can always email me, Allie, at the conservative millennial blog.com. Uh, last week, I was in LA and I got to sit down with Dave Rubin, who is a wonderful person with a wonderful podcast. And we talked about... Um, marriage. He, if you don't know, he is gay and he is married. And I talked about gay marriage from a Christian perspective. So that was, um, that's always a challenging conversation when you talk about views that you know are going to be controversial. But Dave is, is so incredible at having respectful and productive dialogue with, with people that he doesn't agree with. And that is getting extremely rare. And because of that, it's also getting more and more valuable. We also talked about a whole host of other things. We talked about AOC. We talked about Donald Trump and why he is still gaining uh, evangelical support despite kind of his personality and personal life that might seem to contradict that in some ways. We talked about a lot of stuff. So make sure that you go to Dave Rubin's YouTube channel and you can see that entire conversation there, or you can listen on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast too. The audio version is there as well. So before we get into this extremely complex topic of Black liberation theology and the Marxism that it was really founded on, uh, I do want to remind you guys to go see Unplanned. If you have not already, I saw it an extremely emotionally turbulent experience, and I mean that in the best way possible. I mean, think about all of your favorite movies. All of your favorite movies are emotionally turbulent in some way. I remember the first time I saw The Notebook, I don't think I stopped crying for three days. I mean, of course, I was 14, and I probably shouldn't have seen it at that age, but I mean, I really felt like I was attached to Noah and Allie, especially since my name is Allie. Why do you think I named my cat Rachel McAdams? It's because I love The Notebook book so much. Anyway, that doesn't really have that much to do with Unplanned, except that the emotionalism of it 
I shouldn't say emotionalism. The emotion that comes along with it uh, is not a bad thing. It is a good thing, and you shouldn't be scared to see it. Now, uh, the MFAA or the MPAA, I, and now I don't remember, but oh yeah, MPAA, uh, it gave them a, uh, a an R rating, and they're trying to kind of scare away people who maybe don't want to see R-rated movies, or they're trying to scare away young people, uh, which is very unfortunate because abortion is something that young people want to see, and as you know, uh, as a young person, you are able to get an abortion without parental consent. And so this is something that young people need to see. You will actually see an abortion. Difficult to watch, but so important. Um, If you don't already know, this is the story of Abby Johnson. She got two abortions herself, and then she worked at Planned Parenthood. She was staunchly pro-choice. Her husband, her mom could not convince her otherwise. She was so good at what she did at Planned Parenthood that she actually rose to the ranks. She ended up directing uh, this Planned Parenthood clinic until one day she was called to actually assist in an abortion and she had never seen one before. It completely changed her perspective and she knew that she was never going to be the same again. And so this is her story. You've probably seen the controversy surrounding it. Google actually put a propaganda label on it. Um, the, the social media sites have uh, been trying to uh, censor their platforms ever since the movie came out, but it has been killing it at the box office. It's been doing really well. And so make sure that you go see it for yourself. Try to bring your friends. I know personally of a pro-choice person who went to see it, didn't know what an abortion was and was like, oh my gosh, that totally changes my perspective. And so it's having a big impact. So make sure that you go to unplannedfilm.com. That is unplannedfilm.com. You can see where it's playing near you. You are not going to leave the theater uh, being the same person that you were when you walked in. I can just guarantee you that. And I know that from personal experience. Okay. Now we are going to get into what we are talking about. So last week, if you missed last Monday's topic, uh, we talked about Ekimini Uwan, who spoke at the Sparrow Conference. There was a lot of backlash uh, that came with uh, the conversation that she had at Sparrow Conference. Sparrow took her interview down, uh, but Ekimini was actually able to get her video footage back up. And so the the interview is now online. I had already seen the transcript, but seeing the video honestly didn't change anything that I said last Monday. A bunch of you guys sent me the link, but the context, the full context that I was given by the actual video really did nothing to detract from her words. I have done a lot of research on her previous podcast episodes, on her blog posts, and the articles that were written about this particular talk to be able to get a sense of what she actually believes. And last week, we used scripture to kind of uh, take down the ideology that she says is centered on the gospel. And we came to the conclusion through God's word that actually that is not the gospel. Now, my hope and my prayer for Uwan and for anyone who espouses the ideology that she espouses is uh, repentance, that she would come to know the true freeing gospel of Christ that is not centered on this idea that whiteness is wicked or that we need to divest from whiteness. Now, there has been a lot of drama <laughs> back and forth over the past week or so between this Sparrow Conference and, and between Uwan Ekimini or Ekimini Uwan, sorry, who hired a lawyer and all of that. But I, I don't really want to get into all of that because it makes me sad. It makes me sad that there's this kind of division. Now, uh, I do hope, and I don't mean this in a patronizing way at all. I, I say this as someone who believes that there are true believers that run Sparrow Conference, true believers that attended Sparrow Conference, but I do hope that they kind of realize, okay, this was a really bad 
consequence of choosing someone that was more woke than they are theologically sound. I mean, Sparrow knew from uh, what Uwan had done in the past online that was very public, the exact type of views that she had and that she would articulate when she got on stage. And so for them afterwards to say, oh, we're just going to take this down and and not really talk about it that much, um, I think that that was probably wrong. So I actually am on uh, Uwan's side. I'm not on a side, but I, I get her. I understand her frustration and everything we've seen since then that she said the things that she has been saying for a really long time. Now that in and of itself is a problem, but she didn't go up there and shock uh, anyone who put on Sparrow by what she said, because these are views that she's been having for a long time. Now, if you would like to know what I'm talking about, I would go, um, to last week's episode, Monday, Wayward Wokeness, we kind of break down uh, her, we break down her views that she articulated in the interview at Sparrow Conference, as well as one of her blog posts on systematictheology.com. And we use scripture to, of course, back up our arguments there as we always do. And if I do not do that, if there is some discrepancy between what I am saying and what scripture says, I of course want you to know I am much more concerned with being biblically sound in what I say and and how I argue my views than I am being right. And so if you come to me and have an argument with something that I say that has to do with the Bible, just make sure that you do have scripture. When we have this conversation, I I, I get emails and I get tweets from people saying, Hey, you said this and I don't like that. Or uh, I'm offended by that or, or that's wrong, but they don't have any scripture to back it up. And if what I said is backed by scripture, then what you need to say is backed by script needs to be backed by scripture too. So we can both understand that we are operating under the same objective standard, which is the word of God, which is supreme over any of our opinions. Okay, so now let's talk about this black liberation theology. I want to talk about uh, what exactly it is because we discussed it a little bit last week, but as I was digging more into it, I just found some really interesting commonalities with some other ideologies that we would say is decidedly are decidedly not Christian. Uh, now, black liberation theology is seen as a Christian theology. I actually had someone who follows me reach out to me and say, hey, liberation theology isn't bad. It's just more focused on praxis, also on practice, on pragmatism than it is on spiritual things. It's not all bad. There are parts of it that are redeemable. Well, I I just don't think that that is true. If you actually know how Black Liberation Theology uh, was founded, and if you know what it's about. So liberation theology is actually something that started, I believe it was the the 19th century, not the 20th century, maybe the end of the 19th century in Latin America by the Catholic Church. And it might have started out as a good thing. Of course, relieving people uh, from oppression and fighting for justice is something that Christians are called to do. That's kind of what it originally started as. Since then, the Catholic Church has actually spoken out in large part uh, against liberation theology because what it did is kind of it lost sight of the gospel and the spiritual needs of people and said, okay, we're just going to meet the material needs of people. And how it tried to accomplish that in many ways was through big government policies. Of course, that's what we see in a lot of the social liberalism or just the liberalism in general of today. Well, black liberation theology, one of its founders was James H. Cohn, and it took a lot of inspiration from the 
liberation theology that started in the Catholic Church in Latin America. That, like I said, many Catholics and many Catholic leaders later said, okay, no, that's not the way to go. That's not an ideology that we are latching on to. Well, James H. Cohn saw some good in it and said, well, I want to take that and I want to apply it not just to America, but specifically uh, to black people in America. So the stated purpose of black liberation theology is to liberate non-white people from multiple forms of political, social, economic, and religious subjugation. Uh, James Cohn says it is a rational study of the being of God in the world in light. Uh, in the world in light of the existential situation of an oppressed community relating the forces of liberation to the essence of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. Like I said, he is one of the founding advocates uh, of black liberation theology. Now, uh, that might sound okay, but I, I want you to listen. I, I want you to listen to the stated purpose of, uh, of another section of faith or another ideology that I think we would all agree, no matter our political persuasions, if we are Christians, that has nothing to do with the God of the Bible. So the stated purpose of this particular ideology is to teach the downtrodden and defenseless black people a thorough knowledge of God and of themselves, and to put them on the road to self-independence with a superior culture and higher civilization than they had previously experienced. Um, it also is to improve the spiritual, mental, social, and economic condition of African Americans in the United States and of all humanity. Those two, uh, those two statements of purpose are very similar: Black liberation theology and this particular ideology. The particular ideology that I just quoted in the latter section of of what I just said is of the Nation of Islam. So that was a quote by Fard Muhammad, who was the founder of the Nation of Islam in the middle of the 20th century, and James H. Cone actually took a lot of inspiration from the nation of Islam, took a lot of inspiration later from uh, Malcolm X and from the Black Power Movement, of course, in the 1960s and 70s to form this Black Liberation Theology. So right away, it should tell us something, that Black Liberation Theology is mirroring so closely in its language uh, the nation of Islam, which, of course, has been accused of being a Black supremacy group, which I think you could probably listen to the rhetoric of its leaders and deduce that pretty easily. You also know nation of Islam Islam because uh, it is led by Louis Farrakhan today, the guy who calls Jews satanic termites and who preaches about uh, the exclusive exaltation of black people or of non-white people. That is the common thread between black liberation theology and the nation of Islam is the self-glorification or the glorification, the exaltation of black people. That is what they see as their mission and as their gospel. The only difference is, is that the nation of Islam uh, uses Muhammad uses uh, Islam as their cover for that. And black liberation theology loosely uses Christianity for that. Um, now, there is also a deeper connection here beyond the stated purposes of Nation of Islam and Black Liberation Theology. Um, as you know, Louis Farrakhan does not like Jews. That's not a controversial statement. You can look that up online. He does not like Jews. He calls them wicked. He calls them satanic. He refers to them in subhuman terms like termites. Uh, you can watch any of Louis Farrakhan's. Again, this is the leader of Nation of Islam. Um, 
anywhere online. He posts them himself. He posts uh, them himself on his Twitter account. So really not hard to find. Uh, James H. Cohn, the original advocate of black liberation theology, he wrote a book called Black Theology and Black Power in 1969. Uh, Here is what he had to say about Jewish people then. The whole world knows the Nazis murdered millions of Jews and could suspect that the remaining Jews are having some emotional reaction to that fact. Uh, He says, black people, on the other hand, are either ignored or thought to be so subhuman that they have no feelings when one of their number is killed because he was a black person. Probably no week goes by in the United States that some black person is not severely beaten and the news is reported in the in the press. Uh, The surviving Jews had one big soul wrenching incident that wrenched them back to group identification. The surviving black people experienced constant jolts that almost never let them forget for even an hour that they are black people. So what we hear in there is something that is called Holocaust envy. What he is trying to say is that black people have had it worse. He's saying, yeah, the Holocaust was bad, but black people still have it bad. And so instead of James Cone just saying, hey, black people are being treated unfairly, he brings Jews into it for no other reason than to stoke resentment. Uh, James Cone also says in his book, this is away from uh, away from the issue of anti-Semitism. He also says that a black person's hatred of white people is not at all, quote, pathological, but, quote, a healthy human reaction to oppression, insult, and terror. He also says in the same book, to be Christian is to be uh, one of those whom... God has chosen. God has chosen black people. That is James Cone, the founder of black liberation theology. But let me be clear, if it's not already evident uh, in the fact that black liberation theology so closely mirrors Nation of Islam, which we know is rooted in something that is not godly, that is not biblical, and that is evil. Let me be clear about this just with his own words. James Cone was not a Christian. Uh, Here's a quote from him in 1997. I still regard Jesus Christ today as the chief focus of my perspective on God, but not to the exclusion of other religious perspectives. God's reality is not bound by one manifestation of the divine in Jesus, but can be found wherever people are being empowered to fight for freedom. Life-giving power for the poor and the oppressed is the primary criterion that we must use to judge the adequacy of our theology, <laughs> not abstract concepts. As Malcolm X put it, I believe in a religion that believes in freedom. In Anytime I have to accept a religion that won't let me fight a battle for my people, I say to hell with that religion. So, so what James Cone is saying in 1997, the founder of Black Liberation Theology, who is still today hailed as a Christian uh, hero, as a heroic theologian, uh, he advocated for the hatred of white people, resentment against Jews, and the inherent chosenness of black people and and the validity of any faith that speaks of freedom. None of which, by the way, the Bible is saying this is a qualification for the gospel. None of which, by the way, the Bible says, yes, this is what it means to follow Jesus Christ. I mean, he completely denounces the exclusive reality of Christianity that says 
that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. What we see is that James Cone is much more concerned with the, quote, liberation of those he sees as marginalized, which in this case is his own black community, rather than the salvation of their souls. That, of course, is what we have always seen from the social gospel. That, of course, is what we have always seen from liberation theology. That is, of course, what we all what we always see today when we hear this, um, social justice gospel being played over and over again. They don't talk about the about the salvation that is found in Christ. They don't talk about that in order for your soul to be saved, in order to know true freedom, in order to know true liberation, that you have to know Christ, that there is no liberation outside of that. Who? What, what good does it do to a man to uh, gain the whole world and lose his soul? You don't hear them talking about that. They're much more concerned with their politics than they are the power of the cross. Uh, but these are all of the things that black liberation theology is founded on, that its founder espoused uh, themselves. So how does this reflect what we talked about last week at Committee Uwan and her theology that she talked about at Sparrow Conference? And again, this is not important because of this one particular person, because of Uwan. This is important because it was at Sparrow Conference, and this is not just about Sparrow Conference. This is about a mainstream conference in Dallas, Texas, with mainstream evangelical speakers speaking at this conference. Uh, speakers who probably used to be considered at one point theologically conservative, they are sharing a stage with, they are giving a platform to the kinds of people that have this exact liberation theology. It is important for us to know that that is happening. So let's, let's look at how closely the views that were espoused at Sparrow and by Ekamiti Uwan and James Cone, this person who is decidedly not a Christian based on any biblical foundation whatsoever, let's see how closely they mirror each other in their views. So here's a quote from James Cone. The appearance of black theology means that the black community is now ready to do something about the white Jesus. So he cannot get in the way of our revolution. He goes on to say, we must quote, kill the white Jesus. Uh, now let us read a quote from Uwan from her blog. Uh, do the minds and lives of these urban disciples reflect a baptism of faith in the marginalized brown-skinned Palestinian? We talked about the problem with saying Palestinian, God-man, Jesus Christ. Uh, or does their baptism reflect faith in a capitalist white Jesus? Clothed in a polo, blazer, khakis, and loafers. There are grave consequences for worshiping the latter, which is no more than an idol and discipling people of color to do the same. Here's another quote by Cohn. Whiteness, as revealed in the history of America, is the expression of what is wrong with man. It is a symbol of man's depravity, whiteness. God cannot be white, even though white churches have portrayed him as white. When we look at what whiteness has done to the minds of men in this country, we can clearly see what the New Testament meant when it spoke of the principalities and powers. Akamini Uwan, her quote is, whiteness is wicked. You need to divest from whiteness. So it should not surprise us. Since black liberation theology is linked to the black power movement, which advocated for black supremacy, uh, it should not surprise us that we are seeing this kind of resentment. It is no different. It's no different than what we see um, in all of the intersectionality in the oppression Olympics of the left. Whoever is the most marginalized wins. The Nation of Islam and Black Liberation Theology share in what we called a few weeks ago on this podcast is the gospel of grievance. And you know what the gospel of grievance is closely linked to? Collectivism. Yes, 
Churchill called uh, socialism the gospel of envy because that is exactly what it is. These are all Marxist ideologies, all liberation theologies. Nation of Islam, I would say, is a liberation theology. They're all Marxist ideas. James Cone was a Marxist. Uh, Karl Marx, as we discussed last week, espouse these very same views that we are seeing in the nation of Islam and black liberation theology, just without the guise of religion and without the exclusive focus on black people. Um, it was the oppressed versus the oppressor, the proletariat or the working class versus the bourgeoisie, the elite, the poor should hate and envy the rich. It is this idea that those in power are, are evil because they have more than those at the bottom. Uh, socialists like, like Karl Marx and like today's AOC and, and Bernie Sanders espouse the same views. That is why they demonize the so-called 1%. They demonize corporations. They demonize the haves in favor of the have-nots or else they say that they do. And they demand that those who have worked hard for their money must give almost all of it to the government to redistribute it as they see fit. That is how Marx thought equality would happen. And that is how today's socialists think equality and liberation will happen. But has that worked out? No, it hasn't. Has communism worked out? By the way, people... I think I have a review on iTunes that, oh, this girl doesn't know the difference in socialism and communism. Well, Vladimir Lenin himself said that communism is, is the end goal of socialism. So don't tell me that they don't always go hand in hand. I mean, let's look at Soviet Russia. Let's look at Nazi Germany. Let's look at communist China. Let's look at North Korea. Let's look at Venezuela. Let's look at the hundreds of millions of people, 100 million people at least, who died in the 20th century because of collectivist regimes. Uh, socialism does not work. It, it's built as this um, thing where you put power in the hands of the people. But socialism does not work without concentrated central power. That is what happens when the government uh, becomes the middleman between our wealth, the people's wealth, that they made themselves and the poor. Our wealth is funneled through the hands of bureaucrats to do with it as they see fit. A socialist tell you that uh, power is in the hands of the worker, power is in the hands of the people, but it's not. That doesn't even make any logical sense. In order to take the power out of the hands of people who make money, you have to have a large central government that forces that wealth out of their hands. Um, and before you say, well, Scandinavian countries seem to have it figured out. Scandinavian countries are not socialist. They have said that themselves. They are not socialist. They are welfare states, meaning they have a very high tax rate. It's about a 60% tax rate in most Scandinavian countries, and it's actually flat. We have a very progressive tax system, meaning that the, the more money you make, the more you pay in taxes or the higher rates you pay in taxes. Well, uh, the Scandinavian countries basically almost all have a flat tax rate, but the means of production are still in the hands of the people, not the government, which makes them not socialist countries. Um, true socialism is Venezuela, Soviet Russia, Nazi Germany. How did those, how did those turn out? Not too well. Um, so here's another fun connection, though, between Marxism, the nation of Islam, and black liberation theology. Here's Karl Marx in 1844 in his book, The Jewish Question. Uh, quote, what is the secular basis of Judaism? Practical needs, self-interest. What is the worldly religion of the Jew? Huckstering. What is his worldly God? Money. Very well then. Emancipation from huckstering and money, consequently from practical real Judaism, would be the self-emancipation of our time. So here we see Karl Marx um, perpetuating yet another trope that we have seen in these other ideologies that Jews are controlling the world, that they really have it okay. Um, Karl Marx seems to be perpetuating this thing that uh, Jews control the banks. 
that kind of conspiracy theory that has uh, hurt Jewish people and has perpetuated anti-Semitism for a long time. So it's just interesting that anti-Semitism and resentment against Jews is a common threat here. It's just interesting. Uh, all James Cone of the Black Liberation Theology did is take the liberation theology of Latin America, unite it with the Black Power ideology and the Nation of Islam, and there you have Black Liberation Theology that's espoused by people that are still in the pulpits preaching it today, despite the fact that James Cone wasn't a Christian, despite the fact that it mirrors ideologies that have nothing to do with Christianity, despite the fact that it is rooted in Marxism, which has been responsible for the suffering and the the slaughtering of people throughout history since its birth. Uh, so once we have this context, nothing that we hear a black liberation theology people preaching uh, is surprising anymore that uh, sh that Akimini Uwan and others call whiteness wicked. Uh, a cone condone the hatred of white people that they say white people need to divest from whiteness. Um, they, they use, you know, terms that we hear a lot on the left that women need to rid themselves of the patriarchy. This is the stuff of liberation theology of Marxism. So it should be no surprise that many of these on the social justice left are insistent upon calling Jesus a Palestinian instead of a Jew. Uh, we talked about why that was historically incorrect last week. It should not surprise us that they are willing to link arms with people who espouse views that have nothing to do with the Bible whatsoever. As long as they perpetuate uh, what they would call the prag, they would call it the pragmatic manifestation of the gospel. It's really nothing more than collectivism that has been tried and tried and tried and has failed over and over again. Um, and the fact that the Black Liberation Theology parallels so closely the Nation of Islam, it just shows us that it truly is a false teaching, how non-Christian and how unbiblical it is because they are both rooted in sin. They are both rooted in grievance. They are both rooted in resentment. One just calls on Muhammad. One calls on Jesus. They are both rooted in self-exaltation. They are both rooted in self-glorification. You see that in the attitudes of the people who hold to these views, self-exaltation, self-glorification, saying, no one can stop me. I'm on top of the world. I'm invincible. Is that the attitude of someone that is humbly following Christ, who has taken Christ at his word, who has said, yes, I will come and die. Yes, I will deny myself, take up my cross and follow him. Does self-exaltation work together with self-denial? No, of course it doesn't. Um, look, the devil is not creative. He uses the same question today to tempt people as he did in the Garden of Eden, saying, did God really say? And the answer for the Christian should be, yes, he did. God really did say in Ephesians 4, 31 through 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. God really did say in Galatians 3, 27 through 29, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. God did really say in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. 
Yes, God really did give us the 10th commandment, which says you shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor, your neighbor's wife uh, or his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now contrast that uh, to what you read from James Cone, founder of Black Liberation Theology. Contrast that uh, to what you hear on, on what you heard in that particular video on the stage of Sparrow. Contrast that uh, to anyone who espouses these social justice, leftist, liberation, uh, intersectionality, critical race theory views. Are they biblical? Can contrast all of that to the progressive talking points that we hear on a daily basis. Contrast that to the messages of these so-called social justicians uh, that we are hearing from the pulpit of our evangelical churches. Um, and here's here's a, a, a fun just side note to all of this, to bring the political into this. Uh, James Cone was also uh, a big inspiration for Jeremiah Wright. You know Jeremiah Wright as the pastor famous for saying, not God bless America, but God blank America. He was also a great friend and an influencer of Barack Obama. Barack Obama was extremely influenced by these uh, Muslim and so-called Christian liberators, Cone and Wright included. Uh, we know that he has also been, at least informally, I'm not making any accusations. We all take pictures that we wish that maybe we didn't take, but he has been associated at least informally with Louis Farrakhan. So Obama was deeply embedded uh, in this religious Marxist ideology, in this class racial warfare. We saw it over the eight years of his presidency, this promulgation of identity politics, this victimhood narrative. So you want to know why in large part, besides just spiritual warfare, why in large part we are dealing with these tense conversations about race as if we are still in the 1960s segregated South, like all of a sudden, why we are talking about reparations now, uh, 150 years later, which we weren't talking about in large part, not in the mainstream 10 years ago. You want, by the way, you can go listen to my conversation or the podcast on reparations and why they don't make any logical or just sense whatsoever in a previous podcast. But you want to know why we're having these conversations about marginalized groups and what they're owed? Because Marxism has representatives now in the church and in the mainstream church, and Marxism had a representative in Barack Obama. Um, it is not because of Donald Trump. It is not because of this new rise in white supremacy. Now, I'm not saying that Donald Trump is the great reconciler. I'm not saying that he is the great savior here. You know that if you've heard any of my podcasts. Uh, I am not saying that white supremacy isn't a problem and isn't bad. Of course it is. I've also talked about why racism is a sin and why racism is hate. And you cannot love God and hate your brother. The Bible makes that very clear. And so I'm not saying those things are are, are not a problem. But both of these things might be might be symptoms, but it did not start with Donald Trump. And that was not the source. A polarization in politics is a Pew Research uh, study that came out in 2017 that shows what Americans thought about racism against black people in 2009 versus 2017. It asked the question, it said it was a statement whether you had to agree or disagree. Do you believe that personal responsibility is the reason why black people haven't been able to get ahead? Uh, most people on in Republicans and Democrats in 2009 agreed with that, that it was a personal responsibility problem, not a systemic racism problem. 2017, those numbers changed dramatically, but only for Democrats, only for Democrats. Uh, the number of people in the Democratic Party who believe that it wasn't pers personal responsibility, but it was some kind of systemic racism completely changed from 2009 to 2017. Now, we should ask ourselves, did systemic racism really increase 
during the eight years that Barack Obama, our only black president, was in office? I mean, that would be kind of crazy. How would that happen? Of course not. But their perception did because of the identity politics that became mainstream under Barack Obama. He vowed to be our reconciler. He vowed to bring us together, to bring us into a post-racial America. He could have done that. We were there. We were getting there. We were in a good spot. But now we've got this Marxism, this warfare, this resentment against race, against gender, against orientation, against everything coming into play. That's exactly what defines our politics today. It is not godly. It is not biblical. Any ideology, whether it's an Islamic ideology or a so-called Christian ideology founded in this kind of resentment is not of God. And anyone you hear espousing this stuff doesn't need to be listened to, has no theological credibility whatsoever. And we should pray for their heart that they would repent. Um, that is not, as I've said before, to downplay real racism. Uh, as we have discussed, there are evil parts to our nation's history, just like every single nation's history since the dawn of time has had evil in its history. Uh, Jim Crow was terrible. Slavery, terrible. Japanese internment camps, terrible. Segregation, terrible. Horrible, evil, dark parts of American history. Uh, but you know who fought the most against those things? You know who led the way in righting these wrongs? Christians, not preaching critical race theory, not preaching liberation theology, but preaching the reconciling gospel of Jesus Christ. That's who led the way in righting these wrongs. Um, regardless of skin color, regardless of ethnicity, the idea that we are all sinners all of us, not varying degrees, we are all sinners in need of saving and that we can be saved by Jesus Christ to become new creations. That changes everything that has always changed the game and it still changes the game today. It's the only thing that changes the game for the better. I'll leave you with this. Matthew seven fifteen says, uh, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Sheep's clothing can mean a lot of things, but of course we know it means that it seems innocent. It seems good. And of course we are supposed to enact justice on earth as Christians. Of course we should care and uh, work towards the justice of the least of these. We should care about these systemic injustices that do happen like abortion, for example. We should care about all of these things. Uh, Jesus said, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All of these things matter. But when we start mixing in ungodly, unbiblical ideologies with God's definition of justice that we see in the Bible, then you get a gospel that is no longer the gospel that Jesus Christ uh, came to preach to us, but it is in fact another gospel. If anyone preaches to you another gospel, let him be an anathema. So that's how we have to treat this stuff. And I also just want to give another word of warning that we've given many times on this podcast for the pastors out there, for the teachers out there, for the influencers out there who think that they can just dip their toe in the pond of progressivism and say, okay, well, I'm just going to get on board with, with, with some of this, some of this social justice stuff. I'm going to just going to get on board a little bit with the intersectionality, with the identity politics, with the critical race theory, with the white guilt, white privilege stuff. I'm just going to get on board with that because, you know, I'm white and I kind of feel bad for it. It doesn't work like that. Have you met a progressive? They do not want just an inch. They don't want your polite concessions. They want your entire soul. They want all of it. That is why I say it is not possible to be a far left progressive 
and to be a Christian at the same time, because far left progressivism tells you the same thing that Christianity does, that you got to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow progressivism. It doesn't want just a little bit of your opinion. It doesn't want just a little bit of your agreement. It wants everything. So for the pastors that say, well, sure, I'll just give in on this critical race theory stuff. I'll just give in on, on the race stuff. I'll, I'll just buy into that. So I'm not seen as a bigot. Wait till they come for your views on marriage. Wait till they come for your views on gender. Wait till they come for your views on abortion. Wait till they tell you that you have to perform a gay marriage. Are you still going to partner with them then? When, where does it stop? Let us all, let us all, no matter our persuasion, let us all find the definition of justice, find the definition of how we should view race, find the definition of how we should view politics in the Bible. Let us let that be our objective standard. Let us not give in to either side, what conservatives say Christianity should be or what the left should say Christianity should be. Let us not say, well, I have to be on this side of the issue because I don't like Donald Trump. If that means compromising your biblical values, dude, that is not worth it. So uh, whenever whenever I see a pastor or a teacher start talking in a way that is elevating race as identity, that is uh, elevating gender identity as who someone is, is elevating uh, even just the vocabulary of marginalized and things like that, it always makes me just listen a little bit more. I'm not saying I completely turn off because I don't want the left to hijack all of our definitions, but I'm going to tune in to what they're saying to make sure that it lines up with scripture. So often, so often I see such theologically solid people give in on one or two of these issues and then they've gone full on woke. And you're like, what the heck happened to you, dude? What the heck happened? The Bible didn't change, but you did because it became culturally convenient and cool to be this way. And that's not what call, what Christians are called to be or called to do. So beware of false doctrines. See how they always uh, end up, even Christian, ones that sound Christian, Christian false doctrines, they end up sounding like other doctrines that are decidedly not Christian, like Nation of Islam. You hear that a lot. I know I'm continuing to go on and on. But you hear that a lot too with this like love yourself, you are enough, uh, just positive vibes, feel your energy Christianity. Well, that is also reflected in Eastern mysticism. So again, all false doctrines, no matter what they're, what religion they're supposedly covered by, reflect uh, secular ideologies. Black liberation theology is that way. And so is this me first, me centered, love myself, crystals rub on my forehead stuff. That is Eastern mysticism. So just a reminder, the Bible is our objective standard, not our feelings, not culture, not uh, any kind of politician, but the word of God. That's all I have to say today. I hope that you guys have a great uh couple days and I will see you here on Wednesday.